Great, great to see you this morning. This morning, we are actually going to touch the tip of the iceberg about Jesus' Roman trials. Jesus' Roman trials. Remember, we've been saying that for weeks. So I think we're finally here. But here I am looking at this. And I want to go into the three trials, or we're going to go into the three trials next week, just to kind of overview them and whatever. And yet, I can't, I can't go any f- further. How did you get here? Good for you. Someone was here. Well, anyway. And so, I just felt the Lord say, wait a minute, wait a minute. I want you to do somewhat of an overview and remind the class of what you already know, all this is going to be is a repetition of what we already know. But to make sure that we get clarified in our minds, in our understandings, in our vision, our view of what's happening here, the theology, something of the theology, something of the purpose and work of God before we actually get into, okay, Jesus is being tried. Pilate says this. Jesus responds that way. They go to Herod, you know, and all that kind of thing, okay? So that's what this is about today. So hopefully, again, like every time, hopefully the Holy Spirit is here. He's here, but he will be blessing all of us in this. Father, thank you so much for your word. Father, may it redound this morning as always in this class, in the sermons, in covenant groups, in counselings, in our sharing with one another and our sharing with others. May it always redound to your glory. For your pleasure, in Jesus' name, amen. Matthew 27, 11. Jesus stood before the governor. That's what we want to talk about this morning. Jesus stood before the governor. Now, what, what I believe the Lord wants to do, at least to some extent, is this. Who is this one who now stands before Pontius Pilate? Who is he? So let's back up a little bit. And let's remember who this one is who is standing now before Pilate. He's just gone through the Jewish trials, remember? And so they've had to, the, the, uh, the Sanhedrin, at least some of them, the, the, it's the priests and the Pharisees, have had, to, they, they've judged Jesus guilty of blasphemy. You remember that. They've judged him guilty of blasphemy. He's associated himself with the figure in Daniel, the son of man. Remember from Daniel 7. 12 and 13, oh, it 13 and 14. Sometimes I get a verse off here or there, so sometimes you have to help me on that. And so, yes, I am, you know, essentially, I'm the Son of Man, and from henceforth you shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of glory. And then when Caiaphas hears that, you remember, he tears his robe and he says, this is blasphemy. What else do we need to have? We've condemned him religiously. So now they need to take him to Rome, before Rome in order to condemn him judicially the judicial system. And so in order to do that, they have to wait. They have to wait all night until they can, the first thing in the morning, go to the uh, residence of Pilate in Jerusalem. Because remember, a week before, he has marched into the city with several hundred, maybe I don't remember how many, a cohort, can't remember how many that is, of soldiers having come from Caesarea Martyrima down the coast 
where his residence was, he comes into Jerusalem during this time of possible potential upheaval. Remember, because of the celebration of Passover, this is our celebration of when God overthrew our uh, uh, captors, you know, the oppressors of Egypt. And it's very concerning that maybe this will happen again. So he comes in with his army on the west side. On the east side comes Jesus comes in with his band of followers. And you remember the people are saying what? Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Remember, Hosanna, son of David. What does that mean? What does it mean? Remember, we talked about that. It means save us, save us, save us from what? Save us from that group coming in over there. Save us from Rome. He's coming in on the east. They're coming in on the west. And they're saying, Hosanna, Hosanna. This is not just a praise, oh, Jesus, we love you and how lovely you are. That's how churches sing it. Maybe that's okay. It means save us from those people, from that Roman rule. So now Jesus is going to fulfill that cry. As he stands before Pilate. So let's talk about who this one is. <clears throat> and I want to just go through a lot of material I have here. Who is this one who stands before Pilate? And as I go through it, let your mind and let your soul hear this. Let your mind and let your soul hear this. Too often when we listen to the word, when we read the word, when we share the word, when whatever, we are listening with our mind, but too seldom does that which we hear with our mind get into our soul. Do you know what I mean? Our feelings, our emotions, because if the word of God is anything, if the presence of God is anything, he is feeling emotion oriented. Amen? Why do we love God? Not because of who he is. We love God because of what he has done in us, which then causes us to realize who he is. Do you get that? I've heard people say, I don't love God for what he's done. I love him for who he is. Well, you're goofy. Certainly you love him because he has created in us a freedom, a soul connection with his spirit. Amen. And so listen that way as we go through this. Who is this one? He is the preeminent creator and sustainer of all creation. Let's make sure who this man is that we see standing before Pilate. He is the very image of the invisible God. He is the one who upholds the universe by the word of his power. Who is this one? Because if we don't recognize biblically who he is, then what he does is reduced in its impact in our lives. Who is this one? He is the one who has overcome all the temptations of Satan. He is the one, remember, who stilled storms, who cast out demons with a word. He is the one, who is he, who has raised the dead. He is the mighty son of man. Remember in Daniel 7, 13 and 14. This is the one who will be returning in the clouds of glory. He is the one who has come to establish the kingdom of God. Who is he? Who is this one who stands in judgment before Pilate? Who is this man? He 
is the judge of the living and the dead. He is the judge who will now be judged and sentenced to death by imperial Rome. Oh, you're getting, beginning to get a feeling of what's happening here. This mighty man is now, if you would, in the grips of sinful men. And how can this be? How can this mighty man first allow himself and then not only allow himself but give himself into the hands of sinful men? What's going on? He is the Lord of life who will willingly surrender himself unto death for the life of his people. You remember, he is the eternal one. The word of God in the beginning was the word, and the word was God, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Remember in John 1, 1. He is the one who said, let there be light. He is the one. And this one is the one who stands as a man before the court of this world. But when you look at this man, when we look at him in the natural, we're looking at him. We're part of a crowd, let's say, or one of the soldiers in the praetorium that are there to guard Pilate and to do his will as Jesus comes before him. When we look at this man, we see a man who is bound and has been beaten and whose beard has been hit and, you know, whatever. Who is this man? And when we see this, when we understand to some better extent, who is this man before Pilate? I am forced to answer, ask what? What's going on here? Because we don't want to allow ourselves to go through the trial, whether the Jewish trial or the Roman trials, and not see behind the curtain what God is doing in and through this man for his glory in our salvation. We don't want to just see poor Jesus. That's how the world sees him. But we want to see a man who is absolutely walking in the predetermined counsel of God. Remember the sermon that Peter preached on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2. We want to see a man who is there volitionally. Do you know what I mean by volitionally? What does that mean? Someone help me on what that word means. What? Of his own will. He's there not only volitionally, but he is there sovereignly. And any and every aspect of what is going on is under the immediate and absolute comprehensive result of the word of his power. He is in control. He is absolutely in control. What does that say about my life? What does that say about my relationships? What does that say about the difficulties? What does that say about the next election for president? What does that say about the next move of, I don't, it says this one is still in control. Amen? He is the one 
who is still exercising the word of his power for the maintenance of the universe. Why would Jesus, the living word of God, the sovereign creator as the son of man, allow himself to be bound over to the judgment of sinful men to be put to death? What was really going on behind this trial? What is going on is this. Jesus, and we saw this in Gethsemane, is walking in obedience to the Father's will. That he, the Lord Jesus, decided upon before the foundation of the world, among the three persons of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, before the foundation of the world, this day, when Jesus stands before Pilate, this day was absolutely and clearly in the mind and heart and in the determination of this triune being whom we call God. This is the outworking and the fruition of that eternal purpose of God in creating us to be in his image. This is the crescendoing day. This is the day, whether they understood it or not, this is the day that it meant Behold, I bring you good tidings of what? A great joy. Whose joy? The joy of God over the redemption of his people. This is that day of joy. Do we get this? That's what's happening here. This is that day of joy. The Father's joy in sending the Son and reciprocally the Son's joy in obeying the Father. This is now we're in that day when we get to chapter 27 verse 11. And suddenly there was with the angel what? A multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth. Peace with those men with whom God is well pleased. This is the day that was sung about. This is the day that that joy pointed to. To be fruition absolutely in the resurrection, ascension, glorification, crowning of the Lord Jesus And then the sending of the Holy Spirit in Acts 2 for the gathering of God's people into his eternal home to be fully completed as we see in Revelation 22. I'm sorry, 21 and 22. Amen? This is the Bible, correct? It all started when? When did this begin? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's when it began in a time frame. But when did it begin? Ephesians 1.4, before the foundation of the world. Do we get it? So who's in charge here? This one who is one of the three divine persons of the Trinity. He's now standing before Pilate to bring fruition to the Father's purpose in creation. 
That's what's happening on this day. We don't want to miss this. Because you see, if we miss it, we just see another trial and a difficulty. And finally, Jesus gets, and sure, we say, but we don't want to miss the majesty, the monumental grace of God. Because the more we see this and understand it and feel it, feel it in my soul, think about it, ruminate, think, go over it, study it, contemplate. The bigger it gets in me and in you, and the greater is our walk with God. Amen? Right? <clears throat> so in obedience, what is Galatians five, uh, 4, 5 and Galatians 4, verses 4 and 5. God sent forth his son. Why? To redeem those who were under the law. Why? So that we might receive adoption as sons. So what is the purpose of Jesus? The purpose of Jesus in this trial and going forward is the revelation of God's glory, the Father's glory, in a redeemed people whom he will purchase through his death on the cross and in his resurrection. Correct? That's the purpose of the Son here. How would Jesus redeem God's people? How would he do it? He would do it by destroying the works of the devil. Do you remember the verse? 1 John 3, 8, second part. Jesus, God's son. For this purpose, I was on the wrong verse. That's another verse. That's 1, 7. For the son of God... Now, you see, I forgot. Somebody help me now. What does is, what is 1 John 3, 8 say? For the Son of God has appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. But the, perp- but the plan is, or the question is, he's come to destroy the works of the devil. But how, how, how has he done it? You see, and how Jesus destroys the works of the devil is applicable absolutely 100% to how I and you who walk in Christ during these days destroy the works of the devil in us. Can you say amen? How Jesus destroys the works of the devil as far as the devil's authority is concerned has everything to do with how you and I as believers in Christ destroy and keep on destroying the works of the devil or keep them destroyed, if you would, the works of the devil in us on a regular, ongoing basis. So it's critical to understand these things. How will he do it? He will overthrow the God of this world. How? By freeing those who had been in captivity to Satan by putting death to death. Remember Hebrews 2.14. Jesus will destroy death, which was Satan's weapon over us all our days. Because the curse of disobedience is death. Remember that? Where do we see that? What verse is that? The curse of disobedience is death. Where do we see that? Genesis 2, 17, 17, you're right. In the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. 
Jesus had come to reclaim his crown. By the way, just to jump ahead a little bit, I want you to think, why do the soldiers put a crown of thorn on Jesus' head? Don't say anything. If you saw the movie, you may know. Just think about it. Why a crown of thorns on Jesus' head? Because this didn't happen to all these people. They happened to do this to Jesus. This wasn't normal. So let's go ahead. He had come to reclaim his crown, his rule, so that he would be the head of a new and redeemed, regenerated humanity constituted by and constituted in God's love. Why? You see, because ever since the fall, God's people were held in captivity to do Satan's will. You remember that verse? It may be in your notes. I don't know. Is it in your notes? We were held in captivity to do Satan's will. So the next time you hear a discussion about man's free ability before he's saved to call upon the Lord and to be saved, you know, and or whatever, you look at this verse and say there's something wrong. When you're held in captivity to do Satan's will, Satan's will is not that you call upon the name of the Lord to be saved. Would you agree with that? It can't be. What verse did I just quote? Somebody help me. What verse? To do his will. Come on, come on, class. Second Timothy 2 what? 2 what? 26. Second Timothy. That God may grant them repentance. Those who have been captive by Satan to do his will. Remember that? You please, you, you must know these verses. You must know these verses. And as a result, we became slaves of sin. We became captured. Romans 6, 17. You were slaves of sin. In order to achieve this, this freedom, Jesus had to willingly submit himself to death. He had to willingly embrace the curse of death. You notice what I said, or maybe you notice what I did not say. I did not say death was inflicted upon him. Can you get that? He was not put to death. In this sense, he willingly what? Embraced death. He's in control. He's in control. He's doing this all by the word of his power. He is the son of God. As the son of man. Going to the cross. So that for the first and only time, God himself will experience some kind, and this is a mystery, I don't get it, some kind of a fellowship, relational death but he will experience it in the death of this man in whom the Son of God dwells. Now, how does that work? Ask Evan. I don't get it. 
I'm way behind on this. Avin probably knows the answer. So Romans 5, 19, for as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. You've heard this. There's nothing new today. So that by one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Therefore, the son of life came to embrace the death that had embraced his people. And in doing so, Jesus will embrace death so that in Jesus' death, death will be put to death. Jesus' death is death's death. Correct? How many of you men have ever wrestled around with your son or grandson or even a granddaughter or daughter, right? And all of a sudden, quote, the child wins. How many of you have done that? Come on, how many of you have done that? Oh, you beat me, you beat me. Oh, really? Really? So Satan here is going to start a wrestling match with this poor man. This beat up, bound man. And he can't wait to get his hands on him and inflict his ultimate weapon on him. I'm going to kill him. And when Satan enwraps Jesus with his weapon of death, and Jesus expires in the resurrection, Satan realizes he has been wrapped up in the arms of this mighty God. Oh, it was a wrestling match, but really, really, really one-sided. Really, really one-sided. So you see, when Jesus appears before Pilate, Satan now has his chance to rid himself of this arch enemy. Why? So that he can continue his malevolent rule in the universe. Finally. Look at this poor figure of a man. This would-be king. His followers have fled. He has no visible means of support or protection. I mean, he's standing there with some little old robe on with a bunch of ropes or whatever around his wrist. He will now face the supernatural malevolent power of Satan. And he knows it. He knows it. Remember in John 14, 30? I think it's 1430. The ruler of this world cometh after me, but he has nothing in me. I think it's 1430. Someone may want to check that. He has nothing in me. In other words, Satan's going to attack me and apply to me the death penalty that only applies to sinners. But I'm not a sinner. But for the sake of my people, I will be judicially Declared a sinner so that I can be punished. And in doing so, death will be destroyed. He will now be put to death by the power of Rome. But if anything characterized the ministry of Jesus is what it, it was his power. Remember that? 
and his power. I won't go over through the issues of his power. You remember the power of Jesus. And yet all of these activities of power, the dead being raised, walking on the water, stilling storms, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Defeating Satan in the wilderness and coming back in verse 14 in Luke 4 in the power of the Holy Spirit. All of that power, if you would, I don't like to say this, but I think it's maybe okay. All of that power was subsidiary power. Those were just glimpses of the power of God in this man, which now all of that power together crescendos in the revelation of this is what power of God is all about when we have Jesus standing before Pilate. It's a rushing to its peak in Jesus before Pilate. You see, now Jesus will once again now exercise his power to prevent his death and overthrow the enemy. Will that happen? Will he this time exercise the same power? Yes, he is going to exercise the same power, but counterintuitively. What does that word mean? Contrary to anybody's thought processes. He's going to exercise not a different power, but the same power. But this time he's going to exercise it in a way that was absolutely in every human mind and even in the mind of Satan and all the demons in a way that was never anticipated and did not make any sense. But it's the same power. Jesus standing before Pilate is a revelation of the same power that raised Lazarus from the dead, except raising Lazarus from the dead was the result of him standing before Pilate. Healing blind eyes was a result of an anticipation of standing before Pilate. Every work of miracle in Jesus spoke about this moment. Can we get it better in our minds about the ministry and the person of Christ? Can we get a better stream and a flow of what's really happening? Every word of Jesus was spoken, anticipating, and as a result of him standing before Pilate with the opportunity of saying yes or no, if you would, to Pilate. Everything about Jesus' life is crescendoing, going up the hill to this place called Golgotha, called Calvary. And the doorway into Calvary was Pilate, was Rome. He will now do what Satan could not conceive. Remember, 1 Corinthians 2.8 had... Satan and all the guys understood this. They would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Do you remember that verse? 1 Corinthians 2.8. He will willingly now submit to the Father's will to surrender himself to the sentence of death on behalf of God's guilty people. And having the ability to do otherwise, Jesus chose to embrace the curse of death. He chose to embrace it. Listen to what Philippians 6.8 says. I'm sorry. Philippians 2.6-8. 
Although he, Christ, this man, look at this man when we read this verse. Think of this man before Pilate. This forlorn, bound, beaten man. This is before the scourging. Look at him. He, this man, although he was in the form of God, in other words, he was a member of the Trinity. He did not account quality with God a thing to be grasped. He did not come to make himself or to declare himself as God. But he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross. Even that death. Not stoning. Because not a bone of his body would be broken. You remember what the psalm said. It has to be the cross. And I, if I be lifted up. Remember in John chapter 3? It's a cross. His bones are out of joint from the Old Testament. What a work of power. Here's a man who has stopped a hurricane by standing up in a boat and saying, be muzzled. That's what he says in Mark, be muzzled. And everything stops. Can you imagine? Katrina's coming in and somebody on the shore yells out, be muzzled. And the whole thing, whoop, and it's quiet. Uh-oh, what kind of a man are you? You remember that? Ooh, Who are you? We're not talking about a little breeze one day and he said something kind of, this stopped. It came to a stop. What kind of a man is this that fellow's been in the grave four days? He already stinks. And with a word he calls him forth. What kind of a man is this that now bound, could he have overthrown his captors? Could he, Johnny? With less than a blink of an eye. Could he have called upon, and we'll see that, the angels? And would they not have come to? I believe all the angels were standing there, hands on their swords. Come on, just say the word. Come on, just say the word. Come on, just give me a blink. Just give me a little blink. Twitch. Just go twitch, twitch. Come on, come on, come on. What kind of power is this that... Doesn't exercise the power of self-preservation and self-will and self-aggrandizement and self-pleasure for the purpose of self-denial, for the purpose of God's pleasure. What kind of a power is this? David, it's not normal human power, is it? It's supernatural human power by the Spirit. See, what we see here is the power, and I've talked about this before, of the uniqueness of God's kind of love. You notice I normally don't say God's love. God's kind of love. There are two kinds of love in the creation. Human kind of love and God's kind of love. And they are absolutely in opposition with one another and can never be mixed together. In this act, Jesus will most clearly and compellingly declare his love for the Father and the Father's love for him will be demonstrated. 
This peculiar, divine, unique, Kadesh, holy love that exists nowhere in all the universe except in God himself. We see a little glimpse here or there when someone helps an old lady across the street and does something benevolent, but all of that is generated out of a self rather than for the glory of God. Because humans are totally and completely devoid of this kind of love unless it is given to them from above. What power do we see being exercised by Jesus before Pilate? What is this power? We said power. What is this power? It is the power of God's love and the humble submission of Jesus. It is the mystery of the, this mystery of the power of God's love is at work in the weakness of human flesh. This is crazy. There is no religious system of philosophy in all the world that even begins to come near this. This is nuts to the human mind and disposition and thought. It is totally degrading of humanity in its essence of what it can do. It is totally rejecting of our fallen humanity. Isn't it? What power will Jesus exercise before Pilate? The power of Jesus' unique kind of love for the Father will be the power that will destroy Satan's works of malevolent, self-serving, self-aggrandizing love. It's that that's happening. You see, Satan is filled with love. Love for himself. Filled with it. And we are filled with love as natural beings. But love for ourselves. We're filled with love. You see, what we don't need is more love of this sort. So when God saves us, he does not save us to make our love better. He doesn't save us to purify our love. He saves us to replace our love with and by his own unique love. Can you get it? So it's not that, oh, I'm going to try to be more kind. That's self-love. I'm going to try to be more forgiving. Self-love. I'm going to try to be more patient. Self-love. Do you see? It's generated from whom? From me. And it's about me and my benefits. So Romans 2, 12, 2 says, Be ye, don't be conformed, but what? Be ye transformed by the renewing of our minds. It is by the work of the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 22, Galatians 5, 22 and 23. The fruit of the Spirit is love. It is by the work of the Spirit applying and transforming our love by His love into His love that God's power 
is being manifested in us. And it's that love in our lives. His love in me. Love one another with the love of Christ. That is building his kingdom. That is destroying the works of the devil in our lives. So Paul says this about the power of God. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. If you're waging war against your own attitude and your own sin and your own failures by trying to do better and this and that, you're waging war according to the flesh and you're giving Satan more entanglement. You're being more and more entangled by the very flesh that you think you are opposing. So we don't do it according to the flesh, but with the weapons of our warfare, what? Or divinely empowered to destroy strongholds. And then in First Corinthians, I'm sorry, Second Corinthians 12, 9, Paul says, get this thorn out of me three times. And the Lord says in verse 9, what? My grace is sufficient for my power. My what? What power? The power of the love of God, of God's kind of love, is made manifest or perfected or matured where? In the midst of, in locative, in the location of your weakness. That's a little bit of what's happening in Jesus before Pilate. Amen? Thank you.